What's going on, everyone? We're live now. This is the Strength and Success Show. I am caffeinated, yet I had even more caffeine. I am waiting for Riley to hop on here, and we'll get started with episode 84. Remember, you guys can always ask questions on the episode for the live. We record every Thursday, usually, at 1.30, and then it's dropped on every podcast platform every Monday. You can download it. It's entirely and listen to the friend request, the friend request, the joint request, which will be hopping through here for episode 84, which is going to be titled Lessons Learned. I don't know. Ah, there we go. Hello. Riley, hello. You're hello. blurry. I'm blurry? Okay. If you want to be. It's- <laughs> However you choose to express yourself. Yeah, you got kind of like a hazy light thing happening. I don't know. Maybe uh, it's just my phone and your connection. I have no idea. Maybe it's my camera. Am I less blurry now? There was probably some pizza grease on there. (laughs) Power grease. That's power (laughs) grease. Yeah, uh, I don't know. For some reason, this light is really bright today. I don't understand. I didn't replace any bulbs, but whatever. That's it. It's a possibility. You know, I'm, I've, I've taken this out of the fridge. It's been buried in the back of the fridge. This is like that anime G Fuel sage mode that I have for this one. I'm like, you know, I should try it one of these years. It's Naruto, Naruto or whatever. Yeah, it is. It is like Naruto, but it says the flavor is sage mode. I don't know what that means, but I'm about to sage. I'm pretty sure that one was described as like a light orange. You want to know? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I have to know. It's not an orange. It tastes more like a nectarine. It's like the same thing. No, an orange is very different than a nectarine. What grocery store? This is what happens when you shop at like Sprouts and Trader Joe's. <laughs> it's all in the same section, so it all tastes the same. <laughs> it's still a citrus fruit. It's more like nectarine peach. Than it is orange. Yeah, I'm not getting, I'm not really getting like a hard orange. I'm getting more of like a peachy nectarine thing happening, which is not bad. I don't mind it at all. It's pretty good. Uh, wouldn't buy it again, but that's because I found it at like an FYI or FYE. What is it? FYE? FYE. Yeah, it was like $4.99. And it just like, it's, I had to know, so I bought it, but it's like twice the cost of every other energy drink for no reason whatsoever, other than the fact that they had it. Yeah, it's the novelty. So speaking of lessons learned, I will never buy this again. <laughs> well, especially, especially not if it's $5. Yeah, no, $5 is a little bit too much for an energy drink. Um, that makes me think of the scene in Pulp Fiction for a $5 milkshake, which in 94 was a big deal, but now that's like what you're paying at McDonald's too, so it's kind of wild. Um, lessons learned. I like this one because I, I once heard that the best eyesight is hindsight. And you can look back and see over things and realize what you have learned, what you've picked up, what you've discovered along the way. And what inspired this one was actually one of my clients that competed last weekend, Antonio, sent me really introspective uh, recap of his performance and how we did. We only got to work together for like 13 weeks before he competed. He paired his squat, he paired his bench, paired his squat, I think, by like 22 pounds, paired his bench by 11, uh, paired his total, I think, by 40 or 50 pounds, and went like YOLO on the third deadlift. He's like, we peaked phenomenally well. I felt great. He's like, I went yellow because I was trying to hit 2K. I'm like, I would have done the same thing. Um, In hindsight, that was what I wanted to talk about is the difference between your goals versus your expectations because they're not the same. People often confuse what their goals are and their expectations. And Tony did a really good job of looking back and realizing what his goals were, what his expectations were, and being able to divide them and realize where he still has opportunity to grow or improve and even help me along the way coach him to what he he did well with bench, but the volume we did or the frequency of barbell work was a little bit detrimental to him. Like it bothered him a little bit uh, physically, not emotionally, 
but it was one of those things where like it was really hard to keep up with that he pr 11 pounds so obviously it worked we need to find a way to work that around so it's not as, as um, detrimental but that was my point was he was able to separate goals and expectations and i'm gonna give you an example of that i have competed over 50 strength competitions between strongman weightlifting powerlifting and so forth and eight out of ten times i've met my goals but zero out of 10 times, I've met my expectations. And I say that because I've never once gone nine for nine. I've never even tried to secure a safe total and go nine for nine. I put on on the bar. Uh, Riley has seen this from like, I don't care, send it. It doesn't matter what's on the bar for my third, send it. Like, I don't care. Because I have an expectation of giving my all. So I guess you can say I've met them 10 out of 10 times because I've at least given my all. But I don't go in there and confuse the two of expectations and goals because that's what leads to disappointment, frustration, and people wanted to leave the sport because like, ah, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. It's like, you are going to grow the more you can look back and learn those lessons. There's a lot of lessons that I've learned along the way um, for competing, like don't have a plan A only. This is not a, a lot of success people tell you don't have a plan B and there's no turning back. When it comes to powerlifting, you have to have a little bit of a plan A and a plan B because you don't always know how the day is going to go. It's not your life success or your business success or your dream business, whatever. It's your competition. So you do need to have a plan A, plan B. Plan A, if it moves this way, I'm going to do this. Plan B, if it moves that way, I'm going to do this. Or if I don't recomp well, I'm going to do this. I went into a meet once with only plan A because that was what I got from a lot of success books and personal development books was don't have a plan B, burn the boats kind of thing. And it was my worst meat performance <laughs> because I didn't have plan B and the day wasn't going as expected. So I learned, have a plan B, you know, always have a plan B, plan C and so forth along the way, what you're going to take. That's why I like ranges for seconds and thirds, not hard numbers, because it may not always work out that way. Uh, what are you going to do if this happens? Like, for example, Surge, I got called to my opening bench for racking before the rack command. Um, so, you know, I didn't take my planned second on my second. I just dumped it up 2.5 kilos, took it again, and then took my planned second and the third and so forth. That was plan B. That wasn't plan A. But if I stuck to plan A and jumped right to whatever, God knows what would have happened. It could have been a bad day. Introspectively, I like to look back at that. And I don't just mean for meet to meet. I mean, look back from where I was in the year 2000, where I was in the year 2005, where I was in the year 2010. What have I learned and picked up along the way? What have I forgotten along the way? What can I improve along the way? And I think so many of us are so forward-looking on what we want because of our expectations. We forget and lose sight of the goal and don't lose, look back at the lessons learned. And I think it's, it reminds me that it's really important to at least once a year, a lot of people do this on their birthday for like a gratitude post, is they like to look back at things they've learned over however many years old they are and write them down. And I think that's a phenomenal way to look back at life because sometimes we don't see all that we've gained, all that we've attributed and all that we've gotten because we don't look back. Yeah, I, I, I didn't actually think about this really in the terms of powerlifting more of like just in life in general, because like, I think lessons learned, I think of making mistakes. Like people, and I, I suppose I can only speak about this uh, necessarily like for my own introspection, but like everyone makes mistakes um, all the time, you know, make mistakes all like choose the wrong choose the wrong energy drink uh choose the wrong <laughs> it chose you know. me whereby uh you know we make mistakes all the time and i find often and i'm guilty of this is like making a mistake and con like constantly beating yourself up for making said mistake um verse and like if we reverse that and you know it's like someone that you care about or someone that is close to you or whatever when they make a mistake you don't hate them, you don't berate them, you don't uh, make them feel dumb for making a mistake or whatever. 
they, you know, meet you with compassion and are like, all right, you made a mistake. Like, that's all right. You just have to keep moving forward. You got to change it, whatever, you know, whatever advice that they give you. But personally, and this is, like I said, I can only really speak for me and from some like clients I've spoken to, or even some friends I've spoken to. It's like they consistently beat themselves up over and over again for making a mistake rather than being like, okay, I did that. That sucks. Uh, but keep moving forward, you know, and like you kind of live in that past of, okay, well, I, I made this mistake and it caused me this distress. So I'm not good because I keep making mistakes. I'm a failure because I keep making mistakes. Um, this goes for like, you know, trying to start a business over and over again, and maybe it just keeps failing. Or uh, if you do relate it to powerlifting, like, you know, you, you want X, Y total, but you keep falling just short of X, Y, Z total. And it weighs on you, you know, and like we, like I said, for ourselves, we are much harder on ourselves than we are on people we care about or our friends. So, you know, your friends aren't gonna be mad at you that you didn't total what you wanted to total for three meets in a row. They're just gonna know that you've been putting in the work and you've been trying. But we as individuals <laughs> will beat ourselves up over and over again because we're not hitting those goals. Um, and each failure, and we talked about this on previous podcasts before, each failure is a lesson. You know, you learn like what not to do. You learn what steps not to take. Um, you learn A through Z or A through Y of ways that didn't work take for you to hit the goal that you hit. So for me, reflecting on this, uh, lessons learned is kind of like having compassion with yourself, you know, like having a little bit of, I tell people all the time, like have a little grace with yourself this week, like when you're feeling bad or like, you know, if you were sick or something bad happened and mentally you're not in a good space and you go to train and it's not your best, have a little grace with yourself, have a little compassion with yourself when you're making mistakes or you're falling short of where uh, you want to be. And uh, it's, it's hard to do that. Sometimes it's hard to be like, okay, well, I'm not a total failure, even though I failed trying this thing three times and whatever. It's hard not to think that way, but it's not a failure. It's just a setback. I like, I prefer to view them as like speed bumps um, rather than anything. Like it's not a roadblock, it's a speed bump. So having a little bit of passion with yourself when you're learning lessons the hard way in life, uh, you could be 60 years old, you could be 35, 45, 55, 65, and still make mistakes all the time. No one's perfect, no one's human. So having those expectations of being perfect is what is detrimental to you and your growth and your success. And this is speaking from someone who is kind of a perfectionist who is working on it. <laughs> so <laughs> it is it is incredibly detrimental to not be met with compassion and also not meet yourself with compassion uh, when you're making mistakes. Yeah. Um... You know, every little failure is a lesson. And that's what we have to attention to is what I've learned from here. Uh, oh, screw you, Russ. <laughs> For those who are not able to see Russ signed sign on to say, screw you, Trevor, love you. Riley, you're great. Keep it up. <laughs> um, I'm not going to hold your hand now on the roller coasters, you scared little shit. <laughs> that's because then I'll be having my hand stuffed in my pocket. But that's a whole other point. But uh, lessons learned, no matter how painful or easy or small, you know, you're going to learn it. The more painful the lesson, the more likely you are to remember it. You know, it's going to create a pattern. And I always like to look back on what have I learned versus what have I achieved? Or what do I still need to learn? Uh, Alex Ramosi talked about this uh, on a video he put out recently, which is phenomenal. And he talked about the only difference between a successful person and an unsuccessful person is not recognizing what they have to learn. And he talked about if there's any skill that can improve your lifestyle, that can help you have a better life, whether it's a better quality of life as far as how you communicate, if you're in sales, if you're in business, if you're in finance, the only thing stopping you from doing it is your refusal to go out and learn how. 
And I was like, wow, what a great perspective because it's true because we don't take the time to look, listen, and learn. And that's really how all of us grow and develop and do things is by look, listening, and learning. And one of the biggest mistakes is we don't even look at ourselves and see how far we've gotten, what we've learned along the way, what we can still learn and do better at and so forth. Um, sometimes those are really small things, drinking more water, going to bed earlier, shutting your phone off before bed, you know, those kinds of things. They're really small things and sometimes they're massive things, learning how to count your macros, you know, learning how to prioritize your recovery, your time, your sleep, your walking, uh, reading 10 pages a day, whatever that task is, we're all capable. And you have to keep track of your lessons learned and keep looking for more lessons to learn to grow. You gotta have a, like I said, you gotta have the empathy, the, you gotta have empathy and like compassion with yourself when you are having failures, setbacks, whatever. So that is important. Uh, it's just like, like I said, just like you would meet your friends your best friends, your family, your significant other, all these close people with you, just as you would meet them with like compassion and empathy when they make a mistake, you should meet yourself with that same kind of energy. All right, so we got some questions this week. Let's see what we got for the questions. You guys are also welcome to drop questions on the live broadcast. We'll flip back and forth between some of the questions that people have sent us on our stories, our story Q and A's and versus the live and so forth. Okay, um, how would you go from trap bar to power bar for deadlifts percentage wise? Okay, so I usually have them use the same percentage and I will train trap bar differently, whether it's a sumo deadlifter or a conventional deadlifter. If it's a conventional deadlifter and I have them using the trap bar, I have them pull from the low handles to mimic the same range of motion as their actual deadlift. Even though the bar trajectory is a little bit different because it's not in front of them, it's to the side of them, I still wanna keep the same range of motion. Now, for a sumo puller who's gonna be using more quad drive and higher, I'll usually have them pull from the high handles and not really care about it because that's going to mimic the same type of force and development they're going to use for the sumo deadlift, even though it's a conventional stance and they can work on the quad drive and having their thoracic extension being upright and so forth. So usually it's kind of like a one-to-one -one ratio, even though it doesn't necessarily even out that way. Most people can pull more, not everyone, but most people can pull more with the trap bar because it is in line with your body. Sumo puts the bar in line with your body. Conventional puts the bar in front of your body. So a trap bar puts it almost like a sumo position with a more normal stance of right next to your body. So most people are 1% to 2% stronger on a trap bar than they are with regular. If they're grabbing high handles, they can be as much as 5 or 6% stronger. Um, some of the trap bars out there are absolutely garbage, like the Rogue trap bar, and the Titan uses the same Chinese mold that the Rogue uses. Those handles are really high. You know, you can pull like 800 and change conventional and only be a 600 deadlift or conventional. Those are garbage. Just flip, those always take from the low handles. Don't even bother. But, you know, from that ratio, I kind of like to use the same. I don't change it because it's a variation. And I don't like when people are, are typically stronger at a variation of unless it's used for an overload. So if I'm using the high handle trap bar, I'm using that for an overload without fatiguing the low back. If I'm using like a two board, I'm using that for an overload without you know, fatiguing the chest and so forth. That's the only time I want someone to be stronger than variation. Like if you are a stronger SSB squatter than you are a straight bar squatter, you need to identify why. Either you're cheating the SSB bar by shoving it up or your shoulder mobility is so shitty you can't get under a bar and that should be your priority is improving your shoulder mobility. So it's a one-to-one -one ratio for me. If it goes beyond one-to-one, -one, then you're misusing it unless it's specifically for an overload. I actually don't use percentages for trap bar because I find that either people are significantly better or significantly worse. Um, so I prefer to use like an RP or an RIR, but that's also generally because I use a trap bar as a second or third movement, not necessarily a main movement. Um, the only time that I will use trap bar as the main movement is if someone is 
uh, if we're regressing a little bit, maybe due to injury or something like that, I will regress it to a trap bar because that does tend to be a little bit less stressful. You can pull the trap bar with the high handles like Trevor's mentioning, or you can even pull it from blocks if you're not able to get off the floor or something you're struggling. But I don't, I, I never use percentages for trap bar. I always do like the RIR, RP. Um, I also hardly ever recommend using the high handles just because I don't know what people's trap bars look like all the time. Um, and I'd rather you have like a little bit extra range of motion rather than like, like Trevor said, you know, being able to overload 10% more than what you could normally, it doesn't really do any good for you. Um, so I prefer the RP or RIR. I just feel like that's, it's not my main movement. It's not something that I am necessarily tracking as closely as I would like a regular deadlift or um, some sort of variation. So I don't, I don't actually make that correlation. Yeah, we extended range of motion um, when I was training strongman with Heath Allison back in the day. Uh, you know, if you wanted a high handle pick, we used the, the farmer's handles and did high handle picks that way. And, but if we wanted to trap our deadlift to replace an actual deadlift, because some of the motions in there are like tire flips and picks and carries, it was a lot of extender range. So we used to do like deficit trap bars with the low handles and stuff like that, which is a shit ton of fun. <laughs> if you think trap bar takes your back out of it and you do it from a deficit, you're like, whoa. <laughs> it's like doing a good morning from the hands. It's totally different. Uh, man, I should throw that back in there. That's a lot of fun. But there's a question here from James. What tricep exercises other than close grip press helps the bench press other than, and then it cuts off. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what our other than is. Maybe you can chime in while we're talking on this. But if you're looking for tricep development, you're looking for one of two areas. Are you looking specifically for hypertrophy? If so, then you're going to be better off with some type of overhead extension duration because the elongation and the stretch is what's it's been shown scientifically to prove to improve hypertrophy, a stimulus for hypertrophy, I should say, more so than a conventional because of the time of attention and the range of motion. Uh, but if you're looking for actual pressing power, then the mechanics should match. So close grip, yeah, obviously that's our, our, pretty, our closest variation through the false range of motion. One board, two board, three board at that point, because you're going to allow to use a little bit more weight for the same rep scheme or even more weight because it's partial range of motion will help strengthen the triceps and the lockout. But there are a lot of motions that can be done with dumbbells that are also mechanically similar, like a crushed dumbbell press where you're pushing them together because your elbows are in tight to the body, rolling tricep extension. Uh, one of the more phenomenal ones that a lot of people use is a JM press. You do not need an SSB to do a JM press. It's just basically like coming halfway down on a close grip rocking back and then rolling the same way up. It's kind of like a rolling tricep extension with a barbell, but instead of coming behind your head, you're coming below the chin and up. Uh, J.M. Blakely obviously was someone who, you know, pioneered that one. But there are a lot of variations. You just want to make sure you're extending and pressing the elbows out in some capacity where typical tricep pushdowns don't extend the elbow out. You're extending the elbow down, but not necessarily outward in front of your body like you would be. Um, I've even seen some people, I don't know, because a lot of powerlifting gyms don't have machinery. Uh, like commercial gyms, but a lot of old-time lifters used to take like the uh, the neutral grip bar for uh, pull-down cable stations and lock it into like a chest press machine and actually use that to extend and press out because they can leverage against the machine and push outward. Um, that's a great way to train it. I know Charles Glass as a bodybuilder used to do those a lot for triceps for bodybuilders. It's a great way for powerlifter to work in that, that push-out and extension pattern as well with a guided track, which is awesome because it's a little bit more elbow-friendly than the JM press would be for a lot of people. So those are just a lot of ways you can do that. Yeah, I love a, I love a JM press, whether it's barbell or SSB. I think they're great. Um, I also really enjoy a Swiss bar, like full range of motion Swiss bar bench press, because that does hit a lot of the tricep, especially if you use like the, generally there's three straight handles. And if you use the inner two, those will hit a little bit more tricep. I'm also just a big fan of floor press, like barbell or dumbbell floor press. I think that those are very basic movements that help with your lockout strength. Um, you know, tricep pushdowns are obviously going to put 
like Trevor mentioned, more hypertrophy into the muscle, you're going to specifically isolate that muscle. But I also see a lot of people that do tricep extensions and things like that, where they are cheating the movement. Um, they're using a lot of low back, they're using a lot of momentum to push into it. And it's like, if you want to isolate, isolate, you know, uh, so if you're going to do a tricep pushdown, and you're using all of your momentum and all of your back to use it, you're not actually doing a tricep pushdown, you're just doing like an upper body pushdown. So if you want to isolate, you have to really, really isolate. So like the rolling tricep extensions are great, especially if you're laying on the ground, like you can do that from a bench or laying on a ground. But if you're laying from the ground, the dead stop overhead really, really helps you to just use your uh, triceps there. Um, I do like things like tricep kickbacks and stuff, which are really, really simple. Even close grip pushups, like those are just a finisher to like blast them out, max reps at the very, very end, uh, like that prison pump workout. But I prefer basic when it comes to like building the triceps and like most mechanically similar to the bench press. So I like, I love a, I love a floor press, like dumbbell or barbell. I think that those are great for building tricep and lockout strength. Absolutely. All right. What's our next question? Okay. Finding your most ideal head position on squat and deadlift. <laughs> I'm laughing because I remember how I answered this one online. Uh, it was, it was uh, a quick answer. I'm like, make sure your neck and nuts are in the same line, <laughs> which is true. I've said it for years. There's a video with Bridgeford where I talk about that, where, you know, not extending your neck forward, not tilting your neck back. It truly depends on a lot of your body portions, but somehow you want some level of neutrality between your neck and your pelvis to be in the exact same line. Um, there's no way of telling this other than filming yourself from the side with an empty bar and seeing where your position is. Obviously, if you have a low bar, you're going to have so much of a forward lean. The more you extend your neck, the more you're also going to extend your low back. And then you get that S pattern squat. It's not very pretty. Your brace breaks down and your hips shoot up and then you end up with a good morning. So you'll see a lot of people will do better when they tuck their chin down and put their chin in line with their pelvis now, which is going to angle back. It's going to keep the same line in your torso. It makes it much more easier to stay sacked and stable. And then you can put the load over your body instead of the body behind the load. And it's just there's not like a system for saying how to find it. It's just, is your, is your body in lumbar, you know, lordosis or you have an excessive tilt? Uh, that's not a bad thing, but usually that means you have to drop your chin down and your head down a little bit to match it. Are you someone who has more of a posterior tilt? And that means your head's going to have to come up. A great example of that is Dan Green, Yuri Belkin, both have a little bit of a lordotic curve. Both look slightly down when they squat. Someone like Jordan Wong, who has a posterior pelvic tilt, his head is straight up. If you were to try and match their mechanics and you don't have their same morphology, you're fucked. You're not going to do very well there. It's going to screw you up rather than help you. So you have, just have to find if your butt tucks under, your head's got to be up. If your butt tucks back, your head's got to be down. But it should never sag. It should be pulled back in line so your thoracic is tight the entire time. Well, the whole point is to be as stacked underneath the bar as possible. So, like, if you notice that when you're coming up, if your head's shooting forward, your hips are going to shoot forward, too, because you're going to try to balance yourself. Right. So the whole point they stack. So if you see your head shooting forward and then your good morning, your squat or something, then you know that you need to pack your neck back and like, you know, chin to chest or whatever. But that's, that's the general, I feel like there are some exceptions to this rule, but that's the general rule of thumb is like, if you have an interior tilt, you have to look slightly down and tucked. If you have, uh, you know, the uh, posterior tilt, you're going to have to like look slightly up. I know that I have, when I squat, I go, when I stand, I have an interior tilt, but when I go to squat, I have a posterior tilt. So I know that I need to look up the same way that Jordan Wong does. But the whole point is to keep your leverage and keep your balance directly underneath the bar. Like the more that you have yourself stacked underneath the bar, the easier it is going to be to power up. So if you notice that your hips are shooting back, it's probably like generally look at your head. If your head is shooting forward and your hips are shooting back, it's probably because you need to keep your t uh, chin tucked back towards your chest and like change your position a little bit. Like I know that everyone thinks that to come up out of the hole, you have to like immediately look at the ceiling. That doesn't work for everyone. It's the same thing with like deadlifts, you know, go ahead. 
it's an old time cue for the gear lifter, head up, head up, head up, head up. But they're purposely going into the anterior tilt to sit into the suit. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're matter when you're raw, you have to stay stacked. Yeah, if you're looking up and your hips are shooting back and you're good morning, that's not a good cue for you. Same thing with deadlift. Um, you know, if you're if you're looking up so hard that it's arching your back, like if it's arching your back away from the barbell, you have no leverage into the bar. Like your whole point is to come into the bar. So same thing with deadlifts. Like if you notice that bat, your hips are shooting up first, your head might be too tall. You may need to be someone that looks across the room and like towards the ground where the floor and the wall meet. Uh, if you're someone who is tucking really, really hard into it, you may need to pull your, like your chest is dropping and you're tucking really, really hard. You may need to pull your head up a little bit. So there's like general rules of thumb, but it's pretty unique and different for everyone. You just have to notice like where you're, where are you traveling away from the barbell? Yeah, I would agree. Um, okay. We, I feel like we've answered this question a lot of times, so it's up to you and if you want to answer it. On meat day, what are good foods and snacks to have? Who asked this? No. <laughs> Uh, I think actually Robbie asked this right before he competed and Robbie actually went nine for nine. So he should try harder. Have you, have you tried trying Robbie? Uh, unbeknownst to me, Robbie was doing this, this meet nine months after having back surgery. He neglected to tell me that, but we still went nine for nine on PR across the board and his third deadlift looked like an opener, which is even more awesome. So hopefully we push towards seven, but yeah, we do answer this often. And it, I, I don't mind touching on it briefly because this is something that a lot of people screw up. They don't eat at all because they're nervous or they eat the wrong foods because it's accessible. I don't know a lot of people who can eat heavy, high fat, hard to digest foods and perform well. If you're not very familiar with their digestion and your energy expenditure, if you have a hard, heavy meal, it can use up to 30% of your body's available energy to break down and digest that meal. I don't know about you, but I would like to have 100% of my energy for the lift and very little of it for digestion. So when I eat during a meet, I'll usually have a nice size breakfast because that nice belly bloat makes the squat go well to have that brace and stacking ability. But then I will slowly graze throughout the day on very simple to digest things. For me, not necessarily for everyone, but for me, that usually means like a small amount of peanut butter on some bread uh, because that will just fill me a little bit. It'll give me some carbs. The fats keep my blood sugar stable so I don't crash and a little bit of fruit. So I just have like fructose a little bit of fats and some bread. The, bread. the bread digests quick, the fruit digests slower, the peanut butter keeps the blood sugar stable throughout until my next feeding. So I'll have one or two pieces of that or, or crackers, sometimes I've done crackers, but peanut butter bread, peanut butter crackers, not a heavy amount of peanut butter. This is not about that ratio. This is just about enough to get through the meat. So a small snack, a few hundred calories. Mostly I'm hydrating and taking electrolytes in to make sure my body can perform at its best. I do not want to be full. It's not a time I want to have brownies or any baked goods or cupcakes that somebody made or Oreo cookies and stuff like that. If I'm having any of that, it's usually before deadlift. Um, I, I don't actually have it at all until after deadlift. But I, I always tell people, if you're going to have crap, save it for the last meet because you're going to crash after the crap. So you have one more lift left. That's when you want to have it. If you're going to have it, if not, just wait till after. But I don't, I don't understand when people show up there and uh, I've seen people eating like pizza fried chicken wings, bacon. I'm like, how are you performing like that? Not your best, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can say is they're probably used to it. They probably eat like that all the time. But yeah. uh, if, you were, if you were cutting for your eating like that, like if you did a weight cut and then you go to eat super, super greasy like that, your body is not going to respond well. It is not adapted to that. Um, I like to keep it simple on meat day. Also, I, I, like, um, I like muffins. I've mentioned that before. I like muffins, peanut butter is good, like crackers. Um, I like fruit, like pineapple, watermelon, stuff like that um, on meat day. 
Uh, I you generally will buy like Uncrustables because they're easy and they're already made and I can just, you yeah, don't have to like pack a sandwich baggie or a knife or whatever like that. You can just buy the Uncrustables. Um, but just simple things. I'm not, I don't like to be full either. Like I know a lot of people will do like beef and rice meals or chicken and rice meals. I cannot do that heavy on meat day. Um, I just, I don't eat that heavy anyways. Like I just, like my meals are so like so many, I have so many small meals a day that like a full, like normal size meal of chicken and rice or beef and rice. Also cold sounds absolutely terrible on meat day. Uh, I would rather die than eat a cold beef and rice meal. Um, <laughs> I, I would just simply starve. Um, so that's how I feel about that. But um, I just like simple things, simple foods that are like minimally processed. I don't want a whole bunch of like, I don't crap like I generally like I remember like my first couple of meals I had like sour patch kids before deadlifts and stuff and then I was like I really don't feel good eating these um so like it would switch like a banana you know um because those those have high potassium in them so if you're cramping or whatever that'll help you um plus it's like quick absorbed fuel rather than something that is slower to digest so just stuff that I know agrees well with my stomach is what I'm gonna do on meat day yeah, I mean, easily digestible, that's the key. Easily digestible, not going to slow you down, not going to fill you. You don't want to be full for bench and deadlifts. Yeah. Okay, uh, post-meat blood work showing my triglycerides are around double what is considered average. Do high triglycerides affect performance, fatigue, or both? Um, you're probably not going to feel a significant performance detriment, but fatigue, yes, because if you don't have a good circulatory system, it's very hard for your body to, to replenish between sets, between reps, and bring oxygen and nutrients it needs. You are restricting blood flow throughout your entire body to have clogged arteries. Chances are, outside of a genetic disorder, this is poor dietary habits. <laughs> this is eating, you know, uh, I'm lost the term when you have like fried foods. The hell is that fat called? <laughs> Trans fats. Trans fats, thank you. So I learned this a long time ago when I was in college that trans fats are bonded at 220 degrees. The average human body is 96.8 degrees. It is very difficult for your body to break down trans fats at all, if ever. So all trans fats are doing, and God help me, I love french fries, so it's not like I don't have them. I'm not a saint or a monk here. I have pizza, I have french fries, I have fried foods, chicken wings are fantastic. I don't make it a priority to have them weekly, though. That's the key. You know, having them sparingly and enjoying them is one thing. Having them all the time is going to be detrimental to performance because like we talked about before and what they eat on meat day, if your body can't break it down and digest it, your body can't use it as a fuel source. It's just slowing you down and making you more sluggish. So, and it's what's heart disease is what's known as a silent killer because you don't feel it. It's happening and slowly killing you and taking years off your life. You just don't feel it. It's one of those things where the reason why they recommend taking unsaturated fats is to kind of balance that out and, unrefined, you know, um, omega-3s help to thin your blood a little bit and help with the, with the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, shoot. Um, well, I said shoot instead of shit. Yeah. <laughs> blood viscosity. There we go. I bought enough time that it came to me. It helps your blood viscosity so you can increase blood flow. So the first thing I would do is get rid of the trans fats that your body can't digest. Take a long break from them so you can, you know, you know clear that out a little bit. Work on your cardio. Add some cardio in, whether it's walking, cycling, jogging, I don't care what it is, but put some of that in to increase the circulation and definitely start improving your performance with uh, unrefined, unsaturated, polyunsaturated three, uh, three omega-3 fats. Uh, Culture Nutrient has great ones that will not give you the fishy burp because it's the lemon scented instead. But, you know, utilize those. I take them daily. I want to make sure that my heart is healthy. I want to be alive a long time and enjoy my life. So I try to take care of myself, even though I do have French fries sometimes and chicken wings occasionally, but it's not an everyday or a weekly habit. It's just sometimes. 
so it's not even just like the trans fats either. It's like um, all the refined sugars and then like the processed carbohydrates. Like, you know, we talk about like cereal being like a really good post-workout and stuff, but that is going to be like a processed sugar and that is processed carbs. And they're general, unless you're buying like the super, super healthy cereal, which no one likes because those don't taste as good. So like cereals, uh, white bread, um, any sort of candy, uh, all those things are not, going to process as well so if you're doing if you're eating candy if you're eating white bread and things like that um those are in addition to the trans fats those are going to really block you up and like trevor mentioned there's no there are no real side effects for like having triglycerides like you're not going to feel that you're not going to wake up today and be like my triglyceride levels they're really high i can tell <laughs> you feel it right yeah. head now my triglycerides are really high <laughs> Like, it's just, uh, it's not, it's not something that you're going to feel, uh, but your body, it will catch up to you eventually. Um, so like, you know, foods, fruits are recommended in this, at, in this instance, um, like replacing, uh, replacing like white rice with brown rice or quinoa or something is also something that's always recommended. Uh, getting the leafy vegetables in there are also recommended omega threes, uh, or salmon or tuna, if you like actually eating seafood, but things like that are always recommended. Um, but it's just process. It's just getting the bad food, like the quote unquote, I hate, I hate the good and bad food thing because like moderation for everything is always going to be more important than labeling something as good or bad. But if you're going to, you need to filter out the less healthy foods, the more processed foods, you need to filter those out for a little while. Um, those will start to slowly like, uh, reduce your level of triglyceride. Uh, like Trevor mentioned the cardio and stuff too. Um, it's not, to answer the question, yeah, you're not going to see like a whole bunch of performance dip or anything like that. There are studies to show that high triglyceride levels do are related to depression. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not the fact checker for this, but I know that I have read a couple articles in this instance. So it is going to affect your fatigue levels because obviously we know that depressed individuals experience a little bit more fatigue because they're a little bit more stressed mentally, physically, all of that. So you'll probably notice a little bit more fatigue than anything, but you're not, it's not something that is going to greatly impact your workouts to where like your percentages are going to start suffering or anything like that. You're just, your moods are going to not be great because your body is not healthy. Like that's, uh, that's a big indicator is when you're not being healthy, your moods are not great because you're not meeting the like nutritional standpoint or the nutritional needs that your body is supposed to have like that's why they say that like if you're uh if you're you're getting elevated levels of triglycerides your cholesterol and all that kind of stuff you have to filter in the good foods you have to filter in like the natural fruits you have to filter in like quinoas like leafy green vegetables cruciferous vegetables all that kind of stuff um and that slowly starts improving your mood also so yeah i don't think you're not gonna like see any performance issues you're just probably not going to feel the greatest which is going to make you mentally not the greatest lots of mental fog uh memory will probably get poor moods are not that great mood swings are probably pretty heavy so yeah you just got to get a little bit healthier he did mention in this in this uh message to me because this is joey he messaged it to me he did say that he started improving his cardio and whatnot but um i think that since you've already started the cardio you just need to like actually focus on the diet aspect of it and start to like make better, choose better options for the foods that you have. I need these studies that show about the mood because the next time someone's like, hey, you're being mean or you're being a dick, I'm like, lay off, man, my triglycerides are high. <laughs> <laughs> totally excused right there. <laughs> it's not me, it's my triglycerides. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> like, 
someone will probably be like, no, you're just a dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <but> I tickle their eyes. All right, what's our next question? Uh, would you change a client from conventional to sumo? I love this question because there's a lot of coaches like, we need to do this, we need to do that. It's like, it's, it's the, the wrong verbiage, uh, in my opinion. You know, there is better verbiages. Would you like to try sumo? Would you like to experiment with a conventional block? If an athlete wants to do something, that's my job to help facilitate and guide them and educate them as to how. I don't like to be the person to say, you have to squat this way, you have to you know, bench with your head down, you have to, I'll, I'll always point it out to them and say, it might benefit you to do so. You should probably see a strength increase or more stability or better range of motion if you try this. But some athletes are doing this because they want to. And who am I to tell them they can't do this? Like, I literally have a client right now whose best sumo is 585 and best conventional is 545. And he doesn't want to pull sumo in a competition. He wants to pull conventional because that's his choice. I'm not going to tell him, no, you can't do that. Or I won't coach you unless you pull sumo because it's 40 pounds more. That's not my, that's not my decision. Um, if I notice that maybe they're having trouble doing something or getting the mechanics or they're constantly getting hurt in a certain way, I might make a suggestion that they try it. And sometimes they come around to it, but I'll never tell them they have to. It, uh, I'm also that coach will never say that you have to do this meet or I want you to compete here. I don't like that. Um, just from the perspective of it's not my goal to tell them where and how to be and what to do. It's my goal to help them with their goal and educate them on their goal and facilitate their goal. So I don't, I don't like when coaches dictate that every athlete has to do this meet because that's where they'll be at or this, that, and the other thing, or that's where they'll be seen. That's not, that's not their job. Their job is not to sell you. Your job is to help them. And if you help enough people, it automatically will sell you because you've done a good job and they like working with you and so forth. That's just a personal pet peeve of mine. So I, I just don't like when coaches do that and dictate when, how, and where. Um, now, if an athlete is having issues with conventional and they want to try sumo, I'm all for it. I'll, I'll give them steps and processes to build, maybe start them off on blocks and start working on the pattern so they can understand the torso position, the spreading of the, the knees, the, the outside bleeding of the foot, and then pronating back in to come into lockout and so forth. Uh, and the opposite. I have an athlete who for years has pulled sumo and training his back, and I'm like, hey, let's condition your back and let's pull conventional for a while and get rid of sumo and not worry about it. And sure enough, his conventional is picking up and showing to be right on par with his sumo, if not even more. So he's probably going to pull at his next meet conventional and either match his sumo or beat it. But we wouldn't have known that unless I'm like, hey, why don't we try conventional for a while and see how it's going because you're having so many issues with sumo. But it was just a suggestion. It wasn't like, I want you to do this. Yeah, I, don't, um, I, I will never make someone do anything because that's not my job. Like, it's the person thing. But the only time that I even make uh, a recommendation on changing stances is if they keep getting injured and they keep like straining something or whatever, um, I will recommend switching to a different stance or this is when I like to use the trap bar because I feel like generally for the most part people don't uh, have issues with that. But um, I will give them the option of like, okay, hey, this is bothering us. We can choose a regression, whether it's conventional or sumo. Um, I'll say, you know, like this is this is something that is persistently happening. We can use a regression like from blocks or something. Um, or would you be up for trying the opposite stance? And if they say, yeah, they'd be up for trying the opposite stance, then we do. If not, then we choose the regression. Um, also, the only other time that I've made that recommendation too is when someone is getting frustrated with their pulls. Um, and this goes for conventional or sumo. Like I've had clients who were getting frustrated with their conventional because it didn't seem like it was going anywhere or it seemed like they couldn't, it wasn't clicking anymore. Same thing with sumo. They didn't feel like it was going anywhere. They weren't figuring out the cues, whatever it is. They kept getting frustrated. So each week they were getting more down about coming in and having to deadlift because they're like, well, I don't, 
I'm terrible at it right now, you know? So then if I see that happen a couple weeks in a row or like throughout a block, I will generally make that recommendation of like, hey, do you want to take a break from this? Like, it seems to be frustrating you. I don't want you to start resenting deadlifting. So how about we switch it to a different stance and just like have fun with it, see how that is, then we can come back to it later. Sometimes that little mental break is like all that people need. Uh, I know that like, it, it tends to happen more with sumo than anything because it's like, it's, uh, it doesn't, it has to be prettier for the most part. Uh, sumo has to be prettier. There's a lot more nuances for it to be uh, timed right and where conventional can be a little bit more brute force. Um, so I see it happen with clients who pull sumo more often than conventional to where they're like just getting so frustrated and down about pulling sumo and they're like, I don't get it. I'm like, all right, let's just take a break. Let's just do conventional, have fun with it, push it. And then I will cater their second and third exercises to kind of mimic the sumo somehow, like I'll still give them a sumo pattern, like maybe a sumo RDL or something like that, or like a halting sumo, something to still keep that pattern in while they are trying out conventional to not get frustrated. And then that way they won't feel like they're losing their sumo entirely if they're taking like three or four weeks off of it or whatever. Um, but no, I'm never going to force a client to change it. They're the ones lifting, not me. They pay me to help them. I'm going to help them in whatever capacity they want to be helped in. Yeah. All right. What's the next question? Would you rather all feds use power bars only or use squat and deadlift bars? I remember this one, because I, I, I talked about that it would certainly level the playing field to some degree because there are people who leverage a, a sumo bar, a deadlift bar very, very well, or the, the, the length of the squat bar is an extra four and a half or five inches, I think, you know, it's seven and a half feet instead of seven feet. So there's more room for your hands if you're pretty mobile and can kind of towel and grip inside the collars. You know how to grab the collars, you can towel and grip inside the collars. So it would certainly change the dynamics of what some people lift and squat. Uh, there's a lot more whip on a power bar than there is on a squat bar, which a lot of people are like, well, I don't like the whip. But, you know, if Ray Williams can squat 1,050 in sleeves with the same whip, there's no reason you can't. That's not an excuse. But for most people, they just can't get their arms in there because they're so immobile. I don't know if I would rather them all use it. I kind of enjoy the challenges of different aspects of different meets, whether, whether that's a monolift or a walkout, you know, I'll, I'll compete in both different federations that have a walk out of monolith. I've competed in ramps, I've competed in sleeves. I have done uh, non-sanctioned meets where they have just a power bar for deadlift or whatever. I didn't care, it was just for fun. I enjoy that aspect of changing it. We saw this when, we were, when you were getting ready for the American Pro and we brought the Kabuki deadlift bar, which is, has a very different feel than the Texas bar. <laughs> Riley's still scorned by this bar. <laughs> it has a very different feel than the Texas bar and getting used to its flex and its position was a struggle, but I kind of enjoyed that struggle. It was something different that makes for a little bit of a variation and something more to learn and deal with. Uh, I tried different things like widening my hands help reduce some of that flex or stalling my start down. I practiced the entire time. I settled on a static start and when I was in the meet, I still pulled dynamic. I didn't practice my dynamic start. It was a pattern I've ingrained. But I practiced static start the entire time to get used to how that bar whips and moves. I just built comfort around it. I think it's great that we have different options because people have different choices. Like. This is no knock in any federation, but there are certainly environmental differences from federation to federation. You go to a WRPF meet, they're blasting different types of music, gangster rap, metal, people are cursing on the microphone, they're having a good time. You go to a USA, USPA meet nowadays, it's about as vanilla as it can get, and they're, they're playing clean music only and not that loud and no one's cheering. And, you know, you can fall asleep at a USBA meet. You're not going to fall asleep at a WRPF meet. I've competed both. My last meet that I just did, surf was USBA. Um, 
Sergio has a great environment there, but not everyone is that same environment. So that's one of those things that I like is it gives athletes different options of where to compete. I've seen APF meets where they don't even have a start press, you know, start command on the bench press, it's just a rolling start. So, you know, there's certainly differences in how much you can lift based off the rules, but I like that we have those options to do them all. Uh, yeah, on deliver bar, uh, because I, I mean, I don't, I, I squatting with a power bar. And I think that that is more so from the fact that my, my first meet ever was an APF meet. So we used the Mastodon 65 pound bar for my first meet. So that's all I trained on. Like, uh, when I was lifting at surge, that's all that I trained on was the 65 pound Mastodon bar. So it's big. Um, so like me going from that bar to like a power bar, that's 45 pounds and like a lot thinner. I don't like how it feels on my back. Um, I front squat with a squat bar because I do not like to front squat with a power bar. It just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like it sits in my, on my, chest the right way or in my torso the right way um power bar for deadlift i don't really care because i like i would be fine pulling on a power bar it doesn't it it sucks more but it doesn't seem to like affect me as much as some other people like some people will lose significant amounts of pounds off of like going from like a deadlift bar to a power bar because they can leverage it um so i don't, I don't think it's significant enough for me to care that much but i just i like a squat bar so I would prefer not to squat on a power bar. I just don't, I don't like it. Um, it's not my first choice, but I also don't really care. Like it's not something that I've ever really paid that much attention to. The only time that I have ever felt like I needed to practice on a specific bar before a meet was for the American Pro and also for Surge because they both used a Kabuki deadlift bar and everyone was like, this bar is so different, it's so terrible. And I was like, okay, well I need to, you know, some people were like, oh, I love it. Some people said they hated it. And I was like, okay, well, I want to try it, you know, so Trevor brought his in and yeah, <laughs> I'm glad that I practiced on it because well, actually no, before the American bro, I didn't get to practice on it at all. Like yeah, you, you so. didn't have it yet. So the first time it, that it I arrived one week before. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the first time that I pulled on the Kabuki bar was in the warm up room for the American pro. And I was like, <laughs> at 135, I was like, Oh, this feels good. And then I got to like four and I was like, yeah, I don't like this anymore. Like I got up to 400 and I was like, I don't, I don't like it anymore. Um, so I generally don't really even care about what bar is there that I never ask that question about what bar is that a meet. Um, I'd rather just be able to lift on all of them and not use that as an excuse for why, even though I blame the Kabuki bar for everything, but uh, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, Kabuki. Um, people probably scratch their heads like, why does this even matter? And if you want to look at an example of this, you can look at Dan Grigsby. Uh, no, 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 not Dan Grigsby. He's super nice and he's a great lifter, and he's very intelligent. But I believe his best pull in competition on the Texas bar is like 971 or 964, somewhere around there. And then, like, oh, a couple months later, the Kabuki bar came out, and right away he pulled like 1,000, 1,015, 1,025, and then 1,075. So you can see he's gaining almost 100 pounds off the difference between the Texas bar and the Kabuki bar because of the way his pattern is in his style. And there are some people who lost pounds because of the way the kabuki bar flexes so much they can't get the whip of it or the, yeah the, the flexion of it is very different than the texas bar um i know we we're talking with johnny kaufman at at surge you know he hates it the whip throws them all around and it flexes so much so it makes it great to break the floor but then he couldn't control the top and so forth so there's a lot of different nuances the different bars i i do enjoy the challenge but when people are scratching their heads like why does it even matter that's why it matters you know if you really learn how to master a bar or master something that's more more advantageous to you you get a lot out of it 
Yeah, there's nothing wrong with like using the like leveraging the bar well. Like there's nothing wrong with like someone like Dan getting a hundred pounds out of the bar. He's using the bar how it's supposed to be used, you know. So he's he's using every advantage that he can. Uh, and so that you know that was part of the reasoning of bringing the Kabuki bar to uh, Treasure Coast for Surge was like trying to really understand how to use it. Uh, I failed at that, so <laughs> that's fine. I'll figure it out eventually. It's just like wraps. There are people who get 100 and 150 pounds out of wraps. And there are people who get 30, you know, it's just like learning how to leverage the equipment is part of the sport. Yeah. Okay. Uh, least favorite variations. Anything bench press. <laughs> I don't care what kind of bench press it is. I hate it. <laughs> okay. Choose one for squat, bench, and deadlift. All right. Least favorite variation for squat is... Probably the actual squat. I really like squat variations. I excel at, at front squats, SSB squats, dead squats, Zercher squats. Um, I am like a circus performer when it comes to squat variations, but I find the actual squat itself, maybe because I'm missing an adductor part of my hamstring to not be the most comfortable thing in the world, but I, I squat pretty well. Over three times body weight and sleeves, so it's not like a bad thing, but I, I just think it's probably one of the most boring aspects of training for me is to do a traditional competition squat versus all the other fun stuff. Um, bench press is just from years of, of weightlifting and strongman and living in overhead and doing silly things. I don't have the greatest shoulder health and integrity at this point. Any bench press is not great for me. So uh, probably the most uncomfortable is the full range bench press. Uh, I've learned today that if you give me a two board, I'm in heaven. And <laughs> Or at least a better part of hell, I should say. <laughs> and deadlift. Uh, least favorite deadlift variation. Fuck. Do I have to have one? Can I just love deadlifts that much? Mm, nope. You got to choose one. All right. So my least favorite dead deadlift variation is going to be the, the rogue or titan high-handled trap bar. That sucks. <laughs> that just, it's so stupid. I hate it. It's not even worth my time. Uh, okay. For squat, I have two. I hate SSB squats. Hate SSB squats, but I know that I need them, so it's fine. I do them anyways. Have you seen your program this week? <laughs> SSB heavy triple double single. <laughs> yeah, I opened it. And I'm like, huh. <laughs> but I hate SSBs, but I do them because I know I need them. Second least favorite would probably be like a one point five squat in any capacity. High bar. High bar, SSB, low bar, does not matter. 1.5 squat, you can fuck off. Um, bench press, Larson. I, I, have, I have that in my program right now. All of these things that I hate, I do all the time, but I hate them because I'm not very good at them. Larson um, makes me realize how much I use my lower body in my press, so Larson can fuck off. Um, deadlift. Uh, I feel like this would be banded sumo. I feel like banded sumo is all, I feel like banded sumo always has my number. Like it always messes me up. Uh, aside from that, um, I don't know. Cause I really like, I don't like stiff legs, stiff leg conventional deadlifts. I don't really like those. Uh, so stiff legs and banded sumo, I feel like are my, nah, those ones are, I, I'm not good at those. <laughs> I, I, just for, for frame of reference here. Riley's lifetime PR pulled like 501 on a CMO deadlift with no bands, but she couldn't lock out 80% with like a mini band. <laughs> the acceleration and speed just like was like a parking brake. 
it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen because like working all the way up, she like whipped everything up, whipped everything up. As soon as it got to like 80%, which I think we're written for doubles. Yeah. It should be very manageable because the topping weight's only like 90%, not even 100%. But just like the, the way it accelerates is just like a parking brake is like, nah. <laughs> I'm like, not even one? Not even one. <laughs> yeah, it's embarrassing. <laughs> has your number i can put bands on conventional i can give her deficit conventional i have even programmed deficit i'm sorry i've even programmed stiff bar sumo followed by deficit stiff bar and she's like yay and then you know banded sumo is like go to hell i my most recent uh, that combination i had sumo poles and then i had deficit stiff yeah it was stiff bar sumo and then it was deficit stiff bar conventional with bands i pulled more <laughs> deficit stiff bar conventional with bands and i pulled Sumo stiff bar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all I gotta do is throw some quads in there and she's good to go. Yep. Yeah. I think we have time for one more. <clears throat> if you could be any animal, what would you be? Oh, God. Oh, this is, I'm sorry for whoever asked this. This is the lamest freaking question. Not because it's a bad question, just because I see everyone like, I'm a wolf, I'm a tiger, I'm a bear. Like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not any of those things and i wrote a cranky old man rambling one of these days about you're not a beast because the beast is something you go to the zoo and you see they're behind a protective four inch glass wall because they will literally rip your face off and eat you that's what a beast does you know a beast doesn't go to the gym and do sets of 10 a beast will literally eat your fucking kids uh god if if i'm gonna be any animal i don't even want to be an animal i want to be a dinosaur <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to be like a carnivorous dinosaur. I want to be a goddamn brontosaurus. I'm a brontosaurus. Okay. That's what I am. I'm a brontosaurus. Okay. Internet. All right. So mine's not necessarily an animal, but marine life. Uh, so I would choose an octopus. And that is mostly because I have eight arms, so I could hold eight snacks. Who didn't see that one coming? Yeah. <laughs> So cool you know and they like they can hide and they just like you know be slinking around like the ocean floor and whatever and then they're just like oh i'm camouflage now no one can see me and then you know like i said if they want to hold eight snacks at one time they can if they want to slap eight people at one time they can you know that right there is a skill slapping eight people at one time yeah you know a, me and my long neck brontosaurus who are eating from the top of the trees are really impressed with your ability to slap eight people who cares you know <laughs> way down, way down. You can't even perceive me on the ocean floor both of us have octopus tattoos who got theirs first you know <laughs> you know it's still my idea <laughs> no. it's still your idea <laughs> I, I think i think it was shane i think i'm gonna blame shane for this one because i'm pretty sure shane was the one who said no no it was me because we had the space to fill it's inside my arm around titus's name and i'm like what about wrapping an octopus around he's like oh it's red yeah <laughs> and i was like no <laughs> <laughs> all right well on that note this is how i'd like to antagonize riley for the rest of her life i <laughs> first even though she's the one who's fascinated with octopus i was the first one to be able to slap me <laughs> if you ain't first, you're last. So. <laughs> I thought I was the first person ever to have an octopus tattoo, but in this dynamic, I was first. So thank you guys all for joining. Thank you for dropping questions. We really appreciate that so we can help you as best as possible. Thank you for following and supporting Culture Nutra.
you need training programming, but not necessarily coaching, we have the Cultivating Strength pl uh, Program. It's on Trainer Road. There's a link in both of our bios on Instagram. There's also a link to the Culture Nature in there if you need supplements. We talked about the um, unsaturated omega-3 fats. We have a great omega-3 fat in there and stuff like that. Something new might be coming out. So keep your eyes peeled for something new coming from Culture Nutra. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> like an octopus? Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thank you for joining us, Riley. Have anything you want to add? No. Let's, let's, let's give them the bye then. Okay. Bye. <laughs> we'll see you guys next week. Have a great one.